CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we'll take a closer look at CLS's outlook for 2018 and whether we should expect volatility to rise in the year ahead. We'll also review the bond market and provide some tips on how investors can prepare for a rising rate environment. We'll talk about that with our special guest on the show today, CLS Portfolio Manager, Josh Jenkins. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's begin as we always do with a look at the markets. How is January shaping up? Oh, gosh, it's another good month. Yeah. You know, I guess I just heard this morning it was the fastest 1,000-point gain in the Dow Jones ever. Of course, it's kind of a mathematical trick because, you know, it's easier to get 1,000 points now. But anyway, it's it's been a great January. Uh, the returns to last Friday, the market is already at 4% year-to-date. Wow. And that's basically, if you're looking at large companies, small companies, domestic, international, everything is up big. The bond market's down a little bit, but uh, but basically it's another strong start to the year. The one-year returns are eye-popping, and so it's been another great start to the year. All right. Well, on our last episode, we talked a little about CLS's outlook for 2018, but we've since published our quarterly market outlook for the first quarter, and there's loads of helpful information there. So let's go over our outlook on a more granular level, and let's start with stocks. Okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to first talk about the quarterly market right, outlook okay. a little bit, the QMO. Okay. It, we, we, there's a lot that goes to it. So obviously we have commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a PDF, uh, PowerPoint. Uh, we have a video. The video this quarter is about 20 minutes long. It's broken up into chapters, so mm-hmm. people can kind of go to the point they want. I actually think it's a nice review of what we're thinking and what we're doing. And <clears throat> I think in this particular video, it's a little more educational uh, than usual, and we're, we kind of highlight a couple of tools or resources that seem to go over pretty well when talking to investors. So I think it's good. Also, there's a little Easter egg in the last chapter on Bitcoin. So oh, okay. it's nice. had sort of this mixed review. Some people have loved it and some people right. haven't. But anyway, getting back to your question. So mm-hmm. um, in terms of our outlook for the stock market, it is, as we were saying a while for a while now, it's that we expect positive returns, but below average returns, at least in the U.S., and the, the simple reasons that valuations are elevated, it's just really a function of math. Uh, there are strong underlying economic fundamentals, but just the market's not on sale. One thing that we do at CLS in terms of an expectation, we have a couple different ways of kind of coming up with an expectation. First of all, we do have a tool called the CLS Edge Score, which is mathematical. There's no judgment in it in terms of it's just it's just really an algorithm that comes up with an expected return. 
But we also ask all the portfolio managers for their expectations. And what we do is we sort of, we bucket different probabilities. Uh, so what it, so if I ask like Josh, like what is the chances that we'll have a 20% return this year? He might say like 10%. And, mm -hmm. you know, keep going on down the list to what are the chances that we have a loss of more than 10%. So we think in terms of probabilities, which I think is a great way of thinking about the markets and a better way of thinking about the markets and a reason why people should build balanced diversified portfolios. Well, anyway, that's a long preamble to saying that, again, we do expect positive returns, but we think the chances of a really large return are a little bit lower than long-term average, and the chances for a loss are a little bit higher than long-term average. Again, uh, just for an example, is that we expect there's probably a 30% chance of a double-digit gain this year, and the long-term average is 52%. So anyway, just in terms of probabilities. Now, talking about the CLS score, uh, when you kind of bake it all in, our expectation for the return for kind of your typical U.S.-based exchange-traded fund is about 5%. Uh, for international exchange-traded funds, it's at least in the developed markets, is about 7%. And we're looking at emerging markets as probably low double digits. Okay. And um, so, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about bonds. What's our outlook for bonds in a rising rate environment? Same thing as stock market, below average returns, most likely going to be positive. Again, kind of put in those probability buckets. We think that there's uh, probably a 68% probability of positive gains. That sounds really precise, but you know, basically we're saying we think the bond market will generate a positive return, even if interest rates do rise. Uh, we do think the odds of a loss over the next 12 months are a little bit higher than average too, but anyway, so I think the bond market obviously still has a role in balanced diversified portfolios, even if they have below average returns. All right, well, considering all of that, how are we positioning portfolios? A lot of these are going to sound the same, uh, and we talk about them in the quarterly market outlook. First of all, international, uh, retain overweights, and we're even likely to increase those weights uh, and when we get the opportunities to do so, uh, particularly to emerging markets over or developed international. We do like developed international, just like we like emerging market more. Um, the U.S. dollar, it's even though it's been really beaten up, has one of its worst years in years. Um, we still are favoring non-dollar positions. And the other thing that we talk about a lot in one of our themes is that we like smart beta ETFs. Again, these smart beta ETFs are basically rules-based ETFs that kind of take a, an active management approach and, and bring it into an ETF. And so we're favoring smart beta, including value-oriented smart beta ETFs. So that's kind of a summary of our outlook. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's turn to our guest today, CLS Portfolio Manager Josh Jenkins. Hey, Josh, nice to have you. It's good to be here. All right. Okay, so you wrote about volatility in your weekly three earlier this month. Specifically, you asked whether volatility will return in 2018. So before we get to that, tell us about 2017. It's a record year for low volatility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, it was a great year. Uh, all major asset classes were in the green. And, you know, for investors, it was, it was definitely a smooth ride. Um, you had certain metrics like the, the CBOE volatility index, uh, the VIX, you know, the average daily level on the VIX. Uh, was was lower in 2017 than any year since the inception of that index, which is uh, goes back to 1990. Now the VIX actually measures implied volatility, so it's not actually what we experienced. It's really it's it's based off of option premiums on the S&P 500, and it's it's basically illustrates how much volatility traders are expecting in the near term. So from that standpoint, it's you could almost consider it like a sentiment indicator or a, somewhat of a, a forward-looking indicator. 
Now, realized volatility, which is definitely backward looking uh, for the S&P, actually had been lower in one period prior. Uh, in the in the mid 60s, it was slightly lower than where it was uh, in 2017, but definitely near the, the very low end of volatility. Um, standard deviation on the index last year was about 6%. That's a, almost a third, just a third of, of what it has been on the long-term average. So, so definitely much lower. And this is all happening in a year that definitely felt like it was eventful, right? Yeah, uh, it was certainly not quiet from a news flow standpoint. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of high-profile legislative battles, you know, tax reform, the spending bill. There were some geopolitical shifts, you know, tensions with North Korea, clearly some, some unusual times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in most cases, the markets are cyclical. Uh, you know, when something deviates from the norm, there's a, there's a pretty strong tendency to revert to the average. But, uh, you know, volatility may be an exception to that. Um, there's this concept of volatility clustering, which basically just says, you know, periods of large price moves are followed by more large moves and, and periods of small price moves are followed by more small moves. Um, and in the weekly three, I included uh, a, a nice chart that kind of showed, you know, three different periods over the last 30 years where Volatility was much lower than the norm, and, and it was sustained for, for a while. So you had sort of the, the early to mid-90s, uh, the early to mid-2000s, and then a, a period between, you know, 2013 to, to mid-2015. Um, and so really, you know, just because we're rolling into rolling the calendar into a new year, you know, that's not necessarily a reason to just expect volatility to return. So should investors just sit back and relax, take it easy? Um, I think investors should stick with their plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the message I should be. I felt like you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the the message should be, you know, don't let the market calm motivate you to do something that you wouldn't have otherwise done. Right. You know, so so don't take all the risk out of your portfolio because you're expecting some big sell-off. Um, at the same time, you know, don't let the current calm of the market sort of lull you into a, a sense of complacency. Again, just you know, stick to your plan. Right. Okay. And you also wrote about fixed income in your weekly three. The bond market saw a positive year, as we talked about in 2017, despite three rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. So tell us what's working with bonds. Yeah. So, uh, you know, on top of those three rate hikes, um, you know, the Fed also began to normalize its balance sheet in the fourth quarter. And, you know, despite these headwinds, the, the aggregate bond index still returned, you know, three and a half percent on the year. And that's that's the best year since 2014. Uh, coming into to 2018, they're expecting to, to hike another three times. The market's probably pricing in just, just two hikes. Um, you know, a, a side effect of this tightening has been, you know, short-term interest rates have been rising. They're, they're um, you know, respond more directly to, to monetary policy. Um, but at the same time, long-term rates, which respond probably more to growth and inflation expectations, um, you know, if if short-term rates were to to rise, say above long-term rates, then you know that historically has foreshadowed um, both economic and um, you know market weakness. So it's something to keep an eye out for there. Um, you know, but meantime, it's definitely paid to take risk within your bond allocation. You've had credits outperform government bonds. Within credit, you've had high yield outperforming investment grade. Um, and then, you know, Rusty mentioned a little bit earlier that the dollars has been has been a little bit weaker. Um, so that's definitely uh, helped if you've taken on any currency risk. Well, that brings us to the next topic that's featured in your weekly three. This was actually written by Mark Pfeffer in New York, but we'll just have you talk about it, Josh, since Mark is not here. Uh, how to prepare for higher interest rates. Yeah, so uh, obviously higher interest rates, you know, are going to impact fixed income the most. Um, you have things like, you know, your rates on your savings accounts, money market funds, 
uh, are moving higher. Floating rate securities are moving higher. Credit spreads are narrowing. You know, these are all positives um, for returns uh, and, and for income generation. Um, you know, uh, despite despite these hikes, um, you know, bonds again have had a, a positive year, and we don't think that investors necessarily need to, to fear rates. You know, even if rates rise fast enough to cause a short-term loss, you know, long-term investors are still better off. You're still being able to reinvest at those those new higher levels of interest. And Mark had a few kind of specific tips there for fixed-income investors. Yeah, so CLS has a, a AAA-rated money fund uh, that's now yielding more than 1%. That's the Milestone Treasury Obligations Fund. Um, that's always a great option for you know, any of your, your liquidity needs. Uh, for high net worth investors, you know, we can build a customized muni portfolio. Um, you know, inflation-linked bonds should outperform treasury bonds, especially if, if those rising rates are caused by rising inflation expectations. Um, the financial sector should outperform. And then, uh, you know, we continue to believe that uh, actively managed fixed income uh, ETFs uh, could be a good value. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks, Josh. Now let's turn to our funner portion of the oh, That podcast. was fun. What are you talking about? <laughs> Q&A. Rusty, kick it off. All right, great. Well, you guys did go over some of the questions I had on my list, so I've got nothing. So oh, no, I don't believe you at all. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so, Josh, I haven't really talked to you in the last week. You just came back from vacation. How are the slopes? Uh, they were good. They were good. Uh, my wife and I visited visited her cousin in Seattle, and we went to, to Stevens Pass. spent a spent a day on the mountain. Uh, there wasn't a lot of powder, but uh, it wasn't super icy. We came back with no broken bones, so yeah. all in all, it was definitely a, a win. Awesome. We should point out that Josh is a snowboarder. Mm-hmm. I'm a snowboarder, so we just got to point that out. So. Yeah, we need more snowboarders out there. Cool points for both of you. So, uh, so Josh, you do a lot at CLS. Describe what you do. Uh, okay, so I'm a, I'm a portfolio manager. Um, I spend most of my time on the fixed income markets, although I do deal with the equity markets as well and you know other alternative asset classes. Uh, I manage uh, a couple of our Advisor One funds, um, the Flexible Income Fund, which is an intermediate-term bond fund, as well as uh, our Growth and Income Fund. Uh, which is sort of like a moderate risk type balanced portfolio. Um, in addition to that, I do a lot of um, multi-asset income type strategies. Uh, we have one that is uh, sort of a target risk, risk budgeted approach. We have another one that targets income. Uh, and then there's a couple of other, again, sort of within the SMA uh, wrapper, um, fixed income specific portfolios. I think I need to give him some more work to do. <laughs> hey, one thing you didn't mention is that you're also the organizer of the Daily Huddle, and that is when the team gets together at 8 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Eastern, according to Mark. He always wants to point that out. But anyway, so Josh organizes it, but it's it's really Mark Pfeffer and Grant Engelbart and you that really run it. Uh, all of you guys are so well-prepared. You're really well-prepared. Just kind of walk us through your morning routine. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and it's funny. So I've listened to the podcast and a lot of the guys talk about, you know, they wake up and before they turn off their alarm, they're turning on CNBC and they're getting caught up on what happened, you know, overnight in, in China and, and whatnot. I think I take a little bit of a different approach, probably for the first 20, 30 minutes while I'm taking a shower and getting ready. Actually, I don't I don't read the news. I sort of utilize that time to, to think. Yeah. Think about things that I have going on during the day. Think about what's happening in our portfolios. Um, I find a lot of my idea generation kind of comes in that time. And then I hit my car and it's, you know, right to, to Bloomberg Radio, get caught up what's happening in the morning. I'm usually one of the first ones uh, in the office. So, you know, the first hour, uh, at least of my day, is, is spent reading, just understanding what's happening, um, 
getting prepared for that call again. Mark does a great job leading us all off and sort of Grant and I basically just fill in the gaps. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really cool thought. So you start off the day, you're basically controlling your thoughts and setting let the news flow dictate what you should be thinking. That's a great idea. Control what you can't control. Perfect. Okay, so you report on a lot of economic data each day. Uh, in terms of economic data, do you use any of it for investment decisions? I, I you know I think it's part of that that mental lattice work, but there's not like an economic data point that's really if I if you know if the jobs number comes out at more than two hundred thousand, you know. I'm, you know, shortening duration type of thing. It's, it's not that direct. Uh, I, I think it gives me an overall sense of kind of where we stand in the cycle. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not ever turning on the news, seeing something, seeing some sort of economic data release, and allowing that to to drive portfolio decisions. Yeah. Okay, you already mentioned earlier, so you cover a bunch of different asset classes. Of course, we all do. We're all asset allocators here. But again, you have an emphasis on fixed income and, and income products with Mark, including kind of the hot seller Active Income X, which you also referred to. Um, I kind of want to talk about Active Income X. It's, it's really hot. It's really um, probably the most popular model with some advisors and some investors, some wholesalers. Describe what you think are some of the, the good things about Active Income X and what are some of your concerns about it? I'd say from a, a, a good standpoint, I think it's directly uh, pursuing a, a need that's definitely clear in the marketplace. I mean, we talk to advisors all the time and, and generating a sufficient amount of income is always one of sort of their top concerns. So from that standpoint, I think it's definitely a, it's very a direct and, and needed type of solution. Um, I guess if I had one concern is that, you know, in this period of, of lower than normal rates, income is at a premium. People are paying a premium for that income. Um, and so, you know, everything or not everything, but a lot of areas of the income market is it's just really expensive. So, again, we talk about it all the time, you know return expectations just need to be tempered. Let's break that down a little bit more. So there's a lot of different asset classes that you use in sort of this income-oriented product. Which ones right now look the most attractive? I'd say from a valuation standpoint, um, you know, probably REITs and MLPs. Um, for, for various reasons, they've both been beaten up over the last few years. MLPs have, have definitely had a nice little snapback. They might actually have a little bit of momentum now, but you know, they're, they have not participated um, more recently to the same extent that, uh, that other high-income asset classes have. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so another thing about Active Income X is kind of the secret sauce of it is we also use closed-end funds there. And again, among your whole list of things that you do at CLS, you are our in-house closed-end expert. Tell us a little bit about what are closed-end funds, how do we use them, and what is your current assessment of the closed-end fund in universe right now? Yeah, so closed-end fund is sort of just a, a different approach to having that diversified basket of securities. Um, it's another, you know, you have your open-end mutual fund, you have your ETF, and you have your closed-end fund. So unlike ETFs and mutual funds, you can't create and redeem closed-end funds generally after they're issued. Um, they just they trade on the secondary market. Um, and so that sort of nuance creates, at least for me, what makes them so great is without that creation or redemption mechanism, there's no really means to keep um, the price of the fund um, in line with this NAV. And typically they'll trade at a discount and that allows us to come in and, and buy these assets for, for lower than they're worth. That gives us capital appreciation opportunity um, that effectively juices the income. Um, so it's sort of, 
it's a very interesting uh, opportunity for for us. And you know, Active Income, we launched it at, at such a great time because at that at that point, the discounts within the closed end fund space were at you know very very wide levels, and that's been a huge tailwind to our performance. Now they're probably much more in line with what would be historically normal, which again is a discount and is still adding value. You're right. I mean, I love closed-end funds, too, because, as you said, that does not have the arbitrage mechanism like an exchange-traded fund, so they can trade at these big discounts. So we can buy things 80 cents on the dollar, and you and I are both value-oriented and love that stuff. Of course, there's no no guarantee that discount will close. And, of course, the other thing about closed-end funds, they don't trade as, as easily as many ETFs do. So uh, we definitely have to kind of work our trades. Okay, I got a question on the ultimate contrarian trade right now. So, and again, this is a trade that nobody's talking about. And in fact, if you even read our commentary, you know it's contrarian. How do we prepare for falling interest rates? How do we prepare for falling interest rates? Why um, would interest rates fall? And if so, what, what should investors do? Uh, you know, interest rates could fall for a couple of different reasons. Uh, I think it, if you saw a return of, of pretty, subs- maybe not extreme, but heightened equity market volatility, I think that could create some sort of flight to quality that would push interest rates lower. I think if anything came out to shake the the growing expectations for, for growth and inflation, I think that would move interest rates lower. Um, certainly entering last year, basically everybody was on the same boat that they are right now and, and, and that sort of, it didn't really work out. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, rates definitely could move lower. I think right now, um, just increasing duration, high quality bonds, I think that would be definitely yeah. the way to do it. Of course, that question is sort of like, what interest rates are we talking about? Short-term rates, long-term rates, treasuries, corporates. It's always, that's the thing about interest rates. It's, you know, what are people really talking about? It is a contrarian trade, though. I mean, I also, I feel like we should be writing articles how to prepare for a falling interest rate environment. You know, even if our conclusion is you should be short duration, you should really talk about it still. Yeah, if you, if you felt long-term rates were going to fall, you know, you, there, there are long-term uh, non-coupon bond ETFs that just have massive duration. You know, there's 20-plus year government bond ETFs, massive duration. I mean, those would those would uh, have equity-like returns. I bet if you looked at all of the market commentary headlines going back 20 years now, it may, it actually the most popular headline may be how to prepare for a rising rate environment. If that's not the top comment or the headline, it's got to be near it. All right, let me shift the course a little bit here. So, um, Obviously, uh, like many people on the team, you're an insatiable reader. Who are some of your favorite authors, websites, books? Um, and actually, you know what? I'm going to kind of piggyback on that and throw a whole bunch on top of this. So, I mean, obviously, these are factors that influence you. What about just investors that have influenced you as well? Well, uh, you know, we're sitting on a, a podcast called The Wayne Machine. So I'm going to say Ben Graham yeah. is going to be up there. Um, you know, we're in Omaha, so you've got to throw out Warren Buffett. Um, and then, you know, many other value investors, I'll just give you one more, maybe Howard Marks is somebody I've enjoyed and to kind of hit where you were going initially with that question. He had his book, uh, The Most Important Thing, um, that, that I've read and I think a couple of times and that I've, I've It's really a great enjoyed. text. It's very easy to read too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's all about, it's not, it's not too, uh, technical. It's very much just high level, sort of the appropriate way to, to think about the markets. Yeah. Well, websites. Um, I mean, obviously, I do a lot of Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Um, 
lot of different blogs. Uh, the Big Picture by Barry Ritholtz. Um, I think we got a lot of uh, Seeking Alpha. There's some Ben Carlson fans in the office. There's a lot of different, a lot yeah. of different ones. Twitter. I spent a lot of time on Twitter as well. So related to that, in your own opinion, what do you think makes a good investment professional or a good money manager? Um, those could be slightly different things, but I, I think you have to have the passion um, to to really kind of to to be able to put in as much work that's necessary. I think you have to have a passion for the markets. Um, obviously, I think you have to be diligent. Um, you have to really make sure you're, you're turning over all the appropriate stones. And then, you know, I think you have to be an independent thinker. Yeah. You, know, you can't you can't just go with what the herd is saying. I think you need to think for yourself and think outside the box. Yeah, I know it's great. I think one thing you said, <clears throat> which I don't think we say a lot on the podcast, but turning over the most stones, turning over the most rocks. I mean, that is, I mean, that kind of goes back to my training 20 years ago at Fidelity Investments. That was sort of our mantra. You got to turn over the most rocks to find the most opportunities. Okay, so kind of on the people question, you've managed people in the course of your career. What do you think makes a good manager of people as opposed to portfolios? I think um, it's sort of different depending on how many people you're managing. But for me, it's always been, you know, a, a pretty manageable number, um, pretty low number. So I think when you're in that sort of setup, I think you know the ability to to, to be a good coach is probably the most critical thing. Um, to be patient, I think is good, and to to understand sort of the needs of the organization and then the needs of of the employee as well, just so you can sort of maximize everybody's uh, you know everybody's benefit. Well said. Okay, so you manage portfolios, you manage people. Something else you do is you manage a lot of our reindeer games here in the office, a lot of the fun stuff we do. So, I mean, for instance, I even played Ultimate Frisbee with these guys a couple months ago, and I still got some aches from it. But um, but you guys just played basketball recently. You guys play basketball all the time. Who's the best basketball player in our office? You know, that, that's a great question. Um, this is going to be fun because we're going to get trash talk after whatever your response is, no matter what. Right, right. Well, the easy answer is it's not me. Uh, not, not, not by a mile. Uh, probably to one of our younger guys, uh, Mark Matthews or, or Michael Haddon. They're both very good. Uh, Michael's pretty new with us, uh, so you know I'm not ready to to call which one's better. But uh, the, the they always um, get get placed on each other, and uh, the the competitions can get uh, pretty intense. So <laughs> now I know Mark's a talker. Is Michael a talker too? No, okay. Michael is not a talker. No. He's, he's very he's very laid back and. Uh, he, I guess he lets his game be his talking. He's a good Western Nebraska guy. I like it. Um, okay, so obviously you're a Nebraska native, went to University of Nebraska-Lincoln. You're a huge Husker fan. That's that's easy to understand. But you're also a huge Cleveland Browns fan. How does that happen? Uh, so my dad's side of my family, they're all Ohio natives. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. I spent uh, a lot of my childhood overseas, so sort of the only, um, you know, affiliation that I had really was, was to, to Cleveland and to Ohio. And so that's been obviously fun for the majority of my life. I think they were pretty good right up until about the time I was born. And then, <laughs> then not, no, not so much it was now. even way before that too. <laughs> hey, at least you got the Cavs. Yes. You yep, got that. Yep. And hopefully LeBron doesn't leave us. LeBron, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> Is he talking about that again? Uh, there's always speculation. Oh, jeez, I didn't even know that. Who do you favor in the NFL playoffs? I'm going to say to make the Super Bowl, I'm going to give I'm gonna give I'm gonna go Vikings and Patriots. Yeah, and uh, just I mean you can't you can't have as good as the Jags defense is. I don't think you can you can go with Bortles over Brady. Yeah. Uh, and then you know I just think the Vikings defense is, is too too strong. That Saints Vikings game yesterday was unreal. Wow. Um, 
Okay, so I, I got just one more question. So one thing we have on the website, which I think is kind of a cool thing we do at CLS Investments. So if you go to our website, clsinvest.com, and you go to the pages, they're either talking about the investment team or the portfolio management team. Obviously, you get your bio and a picture, but you also get an article, which is sort of an interview and a story, which, of course, Robin wrote. She mm. did all the interviews and wrote them. And they've gone over really well. I think it's a nice way for people to learn more about who's managing their money, who they're talking to. But on yours, one of the things it talks about is you ran a 76-mile race. Talk about that. Yeah, so it's something that's called the the market-to-market. And it's funny, actually, I've gone to, to the marketing to have them kind of readjust the wording uh, because a couple of people asked me, how on earth did you do a 76-mile race? And the easy answer is there was, there was eight of us that did it. It was, it was a relay race. Um, you know, I did a marathon once, and that's I will never go above that. Um, but, yeah, so we have a – there's a – it's called the market-to-market. You basically run from downtown Omaha to downtown Lincoln. It's 76 miles. Um, we, in the corporate category, our team has gotten has, – has meddled or gotten top three um, at least for the last five years, the five years um, I, I participated over the last five years, I'm pretty sure they were pretty successful as well before me. But uh, we, you know, we have a large comp- company, uh, a very large number of very talented runners, and so it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. We kind of we hop in a van and just drop people off at checkpoints, and you know you run whatever it is, five, five, six miles at a time. So we had trash talking. I think when it comes, as Josh said, you know, CLS Investments is part of North Star Financial, and we might be one of the stronger running organizations, I mean, for a corporate corporation mm-hmm. in the state of Nebraska. I mean, we're getting some really strong runners here in the firm. So, well, Josh, that's all I have. Anything else you want to mention? Anything I, I forgot to say? No. I think okay, cool. You think I covered it pretty well? Robin, back all to right. you. Okay, well, thanks, Josh. It was good to have you on the podcast. Come back soon. That'll do it for this week. Rusty, any final words? Let me see. Stay balanced. Ah, All right. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. It's produced by Nick Harnack with help from the marketing team in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.